If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. A poll by the American Psychological Association found that in the past year, in 48% of American households, so that is almost half, someone sought out mental health care. And indeed, in the past few years, seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist, or counselor has become an increasingly common and even typical experience. So whether you are a therapy regular, therapy curious, or a therapist yourself, it is fascinating to think about what happens in the therapy room and how it has such an impact. So for example, a listener of the podcast, a young man seeing a counselor at his college, recently wrote in and asked, why does therapy work? And it is a great question, because it seems like such a black box. Excuse me. And it's a great question because it seems like such a black box. You put two people talking in a room for an hour a week into one side of the equation, and out the other side comes better mental health and greater happiness and confidence. It seems like a mystery. So what exactly is happening in that room? Well, this week's guest, Lori Gottlieb, can help us with the answer because she has rich experience from both sides of the couch. She's a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author who writes the weekly Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic, where she's also a contributing editor. She's also written for The New York Times Magazine and has appeared on Today, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR. Lori's new book, which came out yesterday, is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. And we are lucky to talk with Lori today. So, Lori Gottlieb, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay, we're happy to have you too. And uh, I, I was saying before we started recording that I really enjoyed your book. I read every word, and it's extraordinary for many reasons, but particularly because it is a memoir. Because, you know, therapists are, you know, depending upon the kind of therapy they do, theoretically, like a blank slate, they have a poker face, but you turn this on its head, like very successfully, in multiple ways. And so first, you know, you wear your therapist hat, and you pull back the curtain and tell us, as a therapist, like why you say what you say and do what you do in the therapy room with some of your clients, which is in and of itself, like super interesting. But also in the book, so, you know, minor spoiler alert, you start working with a therapist who you call Wendell in the book to, to get you through. And you write about your experience as a client. So I thought we could talk about both sides. So being a therapist, but also being a client, and how each uh, informs our larger lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's exactly right, that they do 
one does inform the other. And um, and I think that was a really important reason for my wanting to show the other side that therapists normally don't show, mm-hmm. which is what happens when we go to therapy, too. Right. right. Absolutely. Okay, so let's start with the therapist side, which I guess is kind of an artificial start because, again, they both inform each other. But how do you deal with people you don't like? So in the book, (laughs) you bring us along, you know, in the therapy room with John, who is this narcissistic Hollywood producer who does insulting things like referring to you kind of half jokingly, but kind of half not jokingly, like as his mistress. And then like he has like he has his lunch delivered to your office. So, you know, how do you keep working with him? And what inner resources can our listeners tap in order to work with people that they don't like? That's such a great question, because before I became a therapist, I always wondered, you know, what happens when people come to you and what if you don't connect with them Mm -hmm. or you flat out don't like them? Um, And a supervisor had said to me when I was training during my internship, there's something likable about everyone. Hmm. And I was doubtful. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, that sounds nice. But in, in practice, I don't know if that's true. But she was right. You can find something likable about people if they let you in. If they don't let you in, it's very hard to find something likable about them. But if they let you in, and once you can really see who they are and not all of the ways that they're protecting themselves with, you know, abrasive behavior and insulting behavior (laughs) or, you know, whatever they're doing, you can see, you get that glimmer of of who they really are underneath it all. And so with John, you know, he's, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything in the book, but he becomes one of the most lovable people. And, you know, I think in the beginning, people kind of want to smack him, you know, and then (laughs) by the end, they just say, right, they want to embrace him and hug him. And so I think that that shows that, you know, we all have many layers and the things that we're hiding from people tend to be the things, you know, we are very ashamed of them, but those are going to be the things that make us most lovable. And I think that's really important for people to remember as they go around, you know, trying to present themselves in a certain way, that the way you're presenting yourself may not be showing what's most lovable about you. So that's that's thinking about dealing with people you don't like. So my next question is, how do you, is related, how do you withhold judgment? Because, for example, okay, so one of your clients, Charlotte, is, you know, in her 20s, and she can't stop hooking up with all these guys who are wrong for her, including one from the waiting room. And so how how do you handle situations, you know, both in therapy or maybe out of therapy, you know, to for our listeners, um, that make you want to just shake your client by the lapels? Oh, I definitely, you know, you may have that instinct, right? Mm-hmm, Where you feel like, course. oh, you're doing this again? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are you making the choices that are guaranteed to ensure your unhappiness? Right. And I think that's the process of change, that change doesn't necessarily happen the way that Nike says, you know, just do it. Sometimes we have to make the same mistake over and over and over and learn something each time, a little bit, but not enough to, to get us to stop, you know, engaging in that pattern until finally we say enough. I've had enough of that. I don't want to do that to myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you know, with, with Charlotte, it was very frustrating because here's someone who keeps picking these men who are not going to give her what she wants in terms of a relationship. And she just keeps engaging in, in, you know, she seeks them out almost without realizing it. It's very, it's not a conscious process. And then, you know, she ends up with this guy in the waiting room who sometimes comes with his girlfriend. I know. (laughs) And I can't say anything about this because I don't, I can't talk to my colleague about, 
why somebody else is coming to therapy. So Because the guy is there to see one of your colleagues. He's he, The guy yes. is there to see another therapist you work with. Right, right. Yes. And so, you know, I can only work with my clients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, we start to talk about what's really happening. And it has a lot to do with her family and her dad. And she's sort of playing out a dynamic that she has with her father with these men. And it takes a while for her to see it. But when when she does, and multiple things happen, it's kind of like you plant a lot of seeds. And then finally, something like when something blossoms, it really blooms, it really does. There were a lot of a lot of things that were sort of percolating beneath the surface. And then finally, once she started making changes, she made changes in so many areas of her life. Like she was drinking too much and she stopped drinking too much and, you know, things like that. But it all kind of happened at the same time. But it all had to kind of she had to go through a process to get there. So it sounds like patience is a a big part of of withholding the judgment to just keep sowing the seeds and trust that eventually or not, but that the person will find it within themselves to change or say, I've had enough of this or this isn't what I want my story to be. So, right. You know, it's, it's interesting because two things are happening. One is that you want people to suffer less more quickly, right? right. So you want the suffering to go away more quickly. Um, And so I'm not that patient because on their behalf, I'm not that patient. And also it's frustrating to watch someone make the same mistake over and over. So in that, just as a human, it's hard to be patient. But at the same time, I know that if I do something, but the timing is wrong, if I do it too early, that it will blow up Mm -hmm. and it will take Mm -hmm. longer. Yes. So I will then, I will then have her become extremely defensive. And then I have to get past this this new wall that she just put up because I went in there too quickly. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Now I want to pivot and have you talk about some of the challenges of being in therapy, so from the client side. Because, you know, these are challenges that can arise in many relationships in the world, but they're particularly magnified. They're kind of a bouillon, you know, of relationships um, in the therapeutic context. And so first, there is wondering if Wendell, your therapist, likes you. You know, most of us want to be liked. And so can you tell us about trying to wrestle with that and figure out if he likes you and why that's important? Right. So you would think that as a therapist, I wouldn't do the same things that my clients do with me, that I would know better. But when, but when you're, you're, when you're there, room, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're not. You're, you're too just, close you're, to you it. You don't have your therapist hat on. Right. There, there, there were times, you know, where I would be like, hey, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that necessarily, but I would think it. But, you know, I think that, that I had all the same reactions that, that my clients do, which is, you know, you see someone else in the waiting room on your way out and you think, oh, you know, I wonder if she's more interesting than I am. I wonder right. if he looks forward to that hour more than mine sure. because I'm sort of being gloomy and whatever. So, you know, and I, I think we all want to be liked. And I think that everyone wonders, you know, how does my therapist feel about me? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's a, it's an interesting relationship. You know, it's a clinical relationship, but it's so much more than that. And in some ways, it can be one of the most intimate relationships that a person experiences mm-hmm. because it's different mm-hmm. from our intimate relationships out there. Right. And there, and there can be this 
notion of like, oh, I've never told anyone this before, or like you become kind of the safe container to see the real them and they don't do that with other people. So yeah, it, it can be more intimate. Right. Other people have a stake in, in what they say. So mm-hmm. your partner has a stake in what you say. And so if you, you tell your partner something or you tell your parent something or your friend, there's always an agenda. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I no, no, no. Yeah. As, as human beings, yep. you know, it's hard when, when you're invested in the person in that way. But in the therapy room, so many times people will say, nobody knows this about mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. And so I think what people want to know, what I wanted to know as a client was, do you think about me? Do I matter? Mm. Because I know as a therapist that I think about people when they matter and that the therapy can't really work if you don't feel that way mm-hmm. about the person. And and you come to like your therapist a great deal. Yeah. And I think that, that people don't talk about that necessarily either. And in fact, it, one night I end up Google Googling my therapist. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everybody and, does that. Um, yes. And it's sort of like that rabbit hole of the internet yes. where, you know, I find out one thing and then I find out another. And one thing I found out was that um, his father had died, you know, in, in middle age, um, but younger, you know, younger than he, mm. he should have. Before his time, um, sure. a, a sudden heart attack and he had been a runner and, and, you know, purportedly perfect health. And I found this on the internet. And, um, and then I had been talking in therapy about my father, who was, you know, older, and I'm talking about, I'm so glad I have this time with him because I, I love my dad so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then I, when I found this out, I was mortified because I thought, I wonder what it's like for Wendell, mm. my therapist, to be hearing about, you know, my having this time and this close relationship with my father when his father died. And I hid it for a while, stupidly. Um, you know, again, as a therapist, you know you're not supposed to do that. You know that now you're going to be editing yourself in the therapy room. And I finally did confess, and it was went so much better. Good. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Of course, you don't want to admit that, or, nor, nor what you found. So you know, it makes sense. But it creates this lovely moment in the book when you do confess. And so I actually want to connect that to there's another lovely moment. So there's a there's a break in therapy. I forget something happened. And then you go back after like two weeks and his office and his own self has undergone this makeover. Like you you walk in, you're like, wait, am I in the right place? And so you both see and deny seeing him from a new perspective. And so I want to ask, like, how, how do you tell us about that? And how do you deal with seeing beyond someone's role, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a little bit like when you're a kid and you see your teacher yes. out at like Best Buy with, with her husband right. and, and children. And you're like, whoa, you have a life and a family. And wait, you're supposed to be in the classroom. And Mrs. Jones, you don't exist outside. I thought classroom. you lived at the school. Right, right. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, with therapists, I think that the same thing happens to some degree. And so, you know, like I very much thought of him as my therapist and mm-hmm. he was sort of, to me, he was kind of like this, you know, sort of nerdy guy. He wears cardigans. Like yeah, and right. In the cardigan, you know, sort of therapist central casting, yeah. right? And then, you know, there's, he's out of the office for a couple of weeks. And when I come back, I assumed he was either on vacation yeah. or, or at a conference or wherever he might have been. And when I come back, I open the door to the waiting 
meeting room and I think I'm in the wrong place. I think I opened the wrong door because it's been completely redone. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I had noticed when I first came to him was that I I thought, oh, he really has bad taste. And (laughs) (laughs) he had like all these sort of hand-me-downs. And and I was like, hmm, can someone with, with, you know, bad judgment really help me? But I wasn't there for the decor. And so it was fine. But then it was beautiful. It was was beautifully redone. And then all of a sudden he walks out to get me at the appointed time. And uh, he looks different. Mm-hmm. He has grown a beard and he's got a totally new wardrobe. Mm-hmm. It's very stylish and he looks well rested and he just looks completely different to me. And I, you know, part of it was the break and part of it was that, you know, the office has been redone and he's had sort of a makeover mm-hmm. of sorts. And he looks attractive. Right. Right. <laughs> and I never thought of him that way at all. And I was really uncomfortable. And so, um, you know, it was very awkward in the in the room as I was, you know, all of a sudden he sits down, I sit down and therapy's supposed to start and I'm sort of looking at him like, Wow, I'm I'm taking the whole thing in right. and I'm not sure what to do with it. That makes sense. And so that kind of breaks him out of this like therapist role and he becomes like, Oh wait, you're a man who could even potentially be attractive and so that's a totally new thing from your perspective on the couch there. What did you do? How did you get beyond that and be able to integrate like seeing him as a man who could even possibly be attractive and your therapist. Yeah. Well, I think that was really important because it happened at a time when I was coming back into the world after this after this breakup. And so the timing of it was really important because you know, it was interesting. It wasn't so much that I was attracted to my therapist. Right. It was more that I was noticing that he could be attractive. Yes. Because I hadn't seen anyone as attractive after the breakup. I was in this depression. Yeah. And when you're depressed, you know, everything is distorted. You're so, kind of dead you know, to the, the world. You, yeah. Right. The things that you normally would take pleasure in, you don't. The the things that you would notice as, as being interesting or attractive, you just you don't have an interest in that. And so all of a sudden I was emerging from that. And so it was, it, this was later in our therapy and I had just started dating again. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I was noticing men on the street. I was noticing people um, in the way that, that healthy humans do as opposed to depressed humans do. <laughs> right, right. And so uh, the fact that I was noticing that, that he could be attractive too was just another indication that I was I was moving forward from from the grief that I had been stuck in. But yeah, it's a very interesting thing to think of your therapist as a human who has, mm-hmm. you know, their own their own life and that they could be an attractive person out in the world and you know, who they are to you in the therapy room is very different from who they are to other people right. out in right. the world. Absolutely. So finally, eventually there's the end of your work with Wendell. And so how do we know when a tough period in our lives has drawn to a close? You know, like you alluded to in the previous question, you know, like you start to kind of wake up and come out of your depression. And how do you know when you're done with therapy and it's safe to move on? I think that's an ongoing conversation between Mm -hmm. the therapist and the client. And so we have, you know, probably the worst business model ever, yeah. which is that our goal yes. from day one is to lose clients. Is to make because, ourselves obsolete. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Because we want, we want them to feel better. We want them to, we want to encourage their independence. And so we don't want to keep them around forever. We want to help them learn how to trust themselves, feel better about themselves, be mm-hmm. kinder to themselves, function better in relationships, you know, whatever it is that's getting them stuck or whatever ways they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. And so, 
you know, I think that in good therapy, it's an ongoing conversation, that mm-hmm. it's not that somebody feels like, oh, I can't bring that up with my therapist and, or I'm just going to come in one day and break up with my therapist mm-hmm. right. and say I'm right. done. I talk about that at the beginning of therapy with people. You know, I say, even in my informed consent, I say, you know, like, I like to have a few termination sessions mm-hmm. with people so that we can kind of talk about our goodbye and talk about what you've gotten from this experience and what you can take out into the world with you so they feel really solid when they leave. And also that they know that they can come back, Mm -hmm. that they don't have to feel embarrassed, that when they feel ready to leave, I am all for that. And if they feel like they need to come back, I'm all for that too. So it's not like they have to feel embarrassed if they feel like, oh, I really left too early. That's okay. You can you can come yeah, back and you yeah. can leave again. Yep, yep. They can take flight and then, you know, sometimes, you know, they can circle back and check in at the nest and then go take flight again. And yeah, absolutely. Well, Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much. It's really been a delight to talk with you. I love the book. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for this great conversation. Of course. Uh, Lori Gottlieb's new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is out now. So pick up a copy wherever you like to get your books. And while you're at it, check out lauriegottlieb.com or follow her on Twitter at Lori Gottlieb 1. That's Lori Gottlieb, the number one. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Beata Santora. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. If you have read my book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety, please do me a favor and post a brief review on Amazon. It is one of the most helpful things you can do to spread the word and help others find the book. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for a happier, healthier mind. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called The Anxiety Coaches Podcast where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The anxietycoachespodcast.com because healing begins the first time you listen.